Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 149 for the 28th of May, 2014. I'm Chester Wisniewski here again with Paul Ducklin. Welcome back, Paul. It is I who should be saying welcome back to you, Chester, given your travels, because you're actually not in some far-flung location, but right at home. I am. I'm finally back in Vancouver, although, you know, last week we had a, a, a guest co-host on the Chet Chat, so I guess that was why I was welcoming you back. Oh, I see. Okay. I've got one more trip ahead of me, and then uh, and then I get to settle in for most of the summer here in beautiful Vancouver. Excellent. So uh, some interesting stuff happened while you were gadding about Southeast Asia. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the stories we wanted to talk about today is a little confusing, but very interesting, related to, I guess, what you're calling Apple ransomware that's happening in Australia. Now, ransomware is nothing new as far as, you know, holding somebody's device or data hostage for some money, but I don't think we've ever seen anything like this. What exactly is happening to these Apple devices? Well, as far as we can see, there's no malware involved on the device itself, but on Tuesday morning, it appears that a whole bunch of Aussies woke up, all were awoken at 3 or 4 a.m. by their phone beeping with a message. Device hacked by Oleg Pliss. For unlocked device, you need send voucher. Some screenshots suggest 50 bucks or 50 euros. Others, it was $100. Uh, and their device was locked. In other words, it had been locked because it was reported lost. And when they went to log into iCloud or to their Apple account to try and rectify things, found out that it looks as though somebody else had control and was trying to use it to extort money. But quite how their accounts were compromised and why this appears to be Aussies only is still, as you say, completely unknown. The great mystery of the week. Well, isn't this reminds me a lot of the, the old Rickroll that happened in early days of jailbreaking Apple devices. Of course, you know, the root password on an Apple device is set to Alpine, and a lot of people were jailbreaking their phones and, and of course, had SSH running. So it was possible for this worm to spread, come in through the root account and log in with the password Alpine and, and modify the device. I mean, are we seeing a repeat of that mistake? There was some speculation about that on one forum in Australia that I saw, because, of course, Aussies are still touchy about that, because the guy who wrote that iKey worm was, in fact, from New South Wales in Australia. Uh, and it didn't really spread very much further than Oz. But as far as I can see, pretty much confirmed reports of people who don't have jailbroken devices who awoke to this message. If there's a common thread, and presumably there must be one, uh, it's not immediately obvious what it is. My best guess at the moment, I have to be honest, is that it's affecting people who had used the same password on more than one site and some as yet unknown service in Australia has had a password compromise of some sort. There are good reasons why that might not be the answer either, but it's the best one I can come up with at the moment. Yeah, there's only been a few billion passwords leaked in the last year in some sort of database form or another, you know, from all kinds of different services that have been attacked. And uh, what I guess one of the things that came to my mind when I read your story that concerned me a little bit has been this movement in the United States to be able to have uh, uh, carriers remotely physically disable phones. So I guess some legislation passed in the state of Minnesota in the Midwest in the U.S., and there's been a proposal to pass similar legislation in California. And it just seems like this is a perfect example of maybe why you don't want to do that. Because in this case, users can get out of this, right? All they need to do is reset their device. It's not permanently uh, attached to the attacker, right? Fortunately not. It's not frozen by Apple. It's not locked permanently. 
as you say, it could have been much worse. If the phone was locked in a way that said, that's it, I flipped the kill bit, go and buy a new device, then you really would be sunk. Let's hope that these government-mandated thou shalt have a kill switch in your phone doesn't turn out to be as frangible as some of the emergency warning systems in the US where we've had zombie apocalypse warnings and storm warnings that were never going to happen and so forth. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think, you know, the cell phone blacklists that already exist around uh, IMEI numbers and saying, you know, this device has been reported stolen and carriers honoring that not activating devices should be adequate. Since we're talking about breaches and things, uh, eBay this week probably announced, I guess, the, the largest breach we've seen in quite a long time. My gut feeling is, Chester, that Adobe is going to keep the Guinness World Record. It looks as though Adobe are still ahead, sort of 150 million user records to about 145 million. So there's some uh, cold comfort for everybody. Yeah, I mean, the, the real question when we see these giant breaches, or even small ones, is trying to decide what is the severity, right? In, in this case, eBay is saying payment information wasn't included, but, you know, things like birth dates were included. And, I, you know, I don't know about you, but trying to change your birth date's rather difficult if it gets compromised. Um, so, I mean, the severity seems to me to be on the upper end of the scale, but perhaps uh, perhaps not pushing it to 11. Yes, what was particularly alarming is it wasn't just that somebody found some kind of command injection hole in a database that allows them to prize the whole thing loose, but that apparently they were able to get the logins of a few employees and then wander into the network. And it seems that whichever employees they chose... It looks as though those people had almost unfettered access to the entire login database that included hashed passwords. Now, one would wonder why a normal why a normal employee account would need to see that stuff at all, since your hashed password is only used during the login process. Do, do we know for sure that the passwords were hashed? Because I'd seen reports that they were encrypted, and we've made this mistake in the past with the Adobe breach, since you just mentioned the Adobe breach you know, where they said encrypted, and we thought, no, 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 you mean hashed. And then it turned out, no, they meant encrypted. Um, do we really know in this case? No, we don't. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and assume that they were salted and hashed. What's not clear is whether they were hashed in a way that would let someone try a trillion passwords a second, or whether they were using, you know, a bcrypt, an scrypt, a pbkdf2, or something like that, that makes things much, much harder for attackers, and means that if you have chosen reasonably wisely, they're probably not going to be able to compute what your password was. Well, I was going to point that out, that uh, users have a role to play in all of this, and that no matter what technology is used by the service provider, if you decide that password is a good password, there's no amount of hashing that's necessarily going to protect you. Those are usually uncovered right away when people choose poor passwords. So don't rely on the fact that oh, my provider says they're doing PBKDF2 and now I can choose a really crappy password because it's going to take the attackers a while. It's not a good strategy. Uh, some good news. Uh, Europol, the European policing agency, announced uh, the arrest of, I think, 11 Bulgarians that were involved in a credit card scheme for, for uh, I guess, skimming and then and making ATM cards and cashing them out. Yes, uh, apparently the cops raided 29 locations at the same time. So quite a lot of coordination required there so that Group A couldn't tip Group B off. And not only did they nab uh, 11 suspects, and let's, let's be clear, they're suspects, they haven't been convicted yet. Uh, they also collected a, a whole load of ready-to-use equipment, the hidden cameras, skimming devices, uh, all of the stuff that you need to 
create cloned cards. Yeah, and it's important, I guess, to point out that these in these cases that uh, that you know these guys are usually part of a larger ecosystem. So this may provide additional evidence and intelligence to law enforcement to unravel other bits of it, right? Yes, and as you pointed out to me, because in Europe and in most of these cards were used in France, uh, chip and pin would be required. Of course, these crooks needed affiliates or associates on the other side of the world. And some of the countries listed were the Philippines, Malaysia and Indonesia, where they could use non-chip cards. So they just clone the mag stripe. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point, Paul. And I mean, you know, what we see frequently now is, you know, the stolen card data being used in countries that still haven't adopted chips because it's much easier to duplicate the data on a stripe uh, on the back of the card. When we see the United States and a few other large countries that still use Stripe move away from it toward chip, you may start seeing a lot stricter fraud detection for things like cash transactions at cash machines. Chip and pin, as you and Sean talked about last week, isn't perfect, but you could argue it's a lot less imperfect than a mag stripe, which you can copy perfectly and easily. Um, So provided we can get the whole liability thing about chip and pin sorted out, that will get the last few people over the hurdle who say, you know, I'm not going to use it because it isn't perfect, but the financial institutions seem to be suggesting that my liability will be increased because it's so good. If we can get that sorted out and everybody can move, it's not going to cut out card fraud, but it's going to mean that the guys have to work a lot harder than just emailing a bunch of magstripe data from one side of the world to the other. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And I mean, we, we the two data points that we have on that both come from the UK, actually. It turns out that the card industry in the UK suggests that retail payment card fraud is down 85% since the introduction of chip and pin. So that doesn't have any impact on internet stolen card data or other types of fraud, but certainly retail fraud being down 85% is a pretty darn good thing. And in addition, uh, there were some situations with liability that came up in the UK and Parliament stepped in and said to the banks, no, you can't do that. So, you know, that kind of is a poster child for the rest of us. Uh, Here in Canada, we still have liability for chip transactions, but uh, there's a case before the courts right now in Ontario challenging that. So we'll see what happens uh, in other countries. And you're right. I think the liability thing is a concern for a lot of us. Just reducing that retail fraud number, hopefully reduces the burden on the entire system, can reduce the percentages paid on transactions, which means cheaper financial transactions for all of us. So I got home from Vietnam on Friday after I think about 17 hours or 18 hours in transit. I was quite exhausted and I opened up my inbox uh, to try to catch up on some email when I got home. And I had an email from uh, my friends at SourceForge, which is a uh, a large open source uh, software repository on the internet. I've known the SourceForge people for a very long time, and I thought, oh no, it looks like another password reset because of a, a breach. Yes, and what could be worse than a breach in a source code site? You think, oh dear, how many software projects that I use from there have now been compromised as a result? Oh, exactly. I, I, I was very, very concerned, and, and largely because I've known a lot of friends that have worked for them uh, either currently or worked for them in the past and uh, have a bit of a, a personal connection. And then when I opened the mailbox, I had this sigh of relief when I saw the message said that they were pretty much updating the way they store passwords back to the eBay discussion we had earlier in the podcast to a, to a better, more secure method. Yes, I wish they'd been a little more frank and a little less marketroidistic about what password hashing and storage system they were going from and to 
and whether the reason that they wanted you not just to log in, but to log in and choose a new password was because they thought that the old passwords might have been compromised or just because they figured they wanted to make a clean break with the past and have everybody on new hashing techniques with a new password. Uh, Let's hope it was the latter. It is nice to see something that no matter how inconvenient it might be for a user, small bit of inconvenience, let's be honest, is nevertheless proactive when it comes to security. Let's get up to scratch and let's bring everyone along with us rather than giving a two-year layover where we support the old system and the new one. So uh, eight out of ten. They would have got ten out of ten if they'd been a bit more educational in what they'd actually put in the email. Yeah, and it brought me to think about another thing, Paul, and that, you know, my SourceForge.net account, uh, I think I created, you know, more than 15 years ago. And, you know, at the time, perhaps the password hashing method they were using was considered best practice, right? It was the, the standard way of doing it. And there was nothing wrong with that. And computing power at the time wasn't able to calculate billions of hashes per second on an average desktop computer. And it's important to revisit these things, right? Like what you're doing today, let's say you do use PBKDF2, uh, which is one of the considered best practices today. Will that be true 15 years from now? I mean, you know, 15 years from now, I'm sure we'll have learned and changed and all this kind of stuff. So it's important, I think, to go back and look at the security of applications every 18 to 36 months, perhaps, and, and, and review those decisions and see if they're still current. I guess what you're saying is don't forget the other side of Moore's Law's coin. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Whether SourceForge did this uh, in a timely manner or not, I think we we have to, as as you said, 8 out of 10, I think we have to give them a pat on the back. And and as users, I hope people don't complain to them, right? We, We need to understand this is for our own good, and it's for our own safety and security online. And that this isn't a bad thing. If we see others doing this, uh, that that's a good thing as well. I mean, it's not hard to change our passwords once in a while. So on that note, I'll end Software Security Chat Chat 149. As always, for the latest security news, visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. For all of our podcasts and our RSS feed and audio stuff, you can get it on iTunes, or you can get that at soundcloud.com slash And until next time, stay secure.